Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight. My name is James Walner. This episode deals with homicide, suicide, and violence. Listener discretion is advised. This is the last scheduled episode of The Mandan Murders about the 2019 quadruple homicides at RJR Maintenance and Management. If you've not listened to the earlier episodes, you'll want to go back and do that first. In this episode, we'll hear from Chad Isaac's family. They have never spoken out to the media about this before. We will also look into Chad Isaac as a person and what was going on in his life leading up to these murders. We'll hear again from BCI agent Joe Ahrens and others as we attempt to nail down what Chad Isaac's motive may have been. I don't think any community could ever imagine something like this happening in their backyard. Robert Faulkner age 52, Adam Fuhr, age 42, Lois Cobb, age 45, and William Cobb, age 50. Gather and I like physically couldn't get myself out of the car. And I called my mom and I told her that I gave my daughter her middle name. It was just such a proud moment. I could hear it in her voice. And he would just be making breakfast. Um, and that was, I just remember that was almost every Sunday. So he called me and said, where are you? At my grandma's house. <laughs> Look out the window, Adam's here. And then it's like, and then, he was, then it was time to pick on his sister. And During this series, we have met a lot of people and we've learned a lot of things. We've learned a lot about this horrendous crime, but also we've learned some things about grief, coping, and loss. One thing I have learned, or maybe we should say I've been repeatedly reminded of, is this whole thing about you just never know. From one day to the next, as much as we plan and attempt to anticipate what's coming, we really never know what's in store for us. And I've also been reminded that knowing that doesn't change that much. At least we can't live our lives fully if we're paralyzed by fearful thoughts of the uncertainty of our next day, our next hour, or our next 10 minutes. To give in to that fear, that feels a little bit like surrendering, surrendering to hate, maybe even to evil. Maybe that's why I've been experiencing this odd thing lately, Sometimes during, sometimes after my conversations with so many friends and family of Bill, Lois, Adam, and Robert, my brain has been serving up a mental image for me from my past. It's more like a flash of light in the periphery of my vision, flickering on and off as if my eyes are playing tricks on me. The image is a simple one, as I said, from my past about eight years ago. I'm standing in New York's Times Square during one of my only two visits to that city. And my daughter is with me. We're tourists in the Big Apple. She's about 23 years old at the time. She's standing on the sidewalk, looking up, taking in the big city. And behind her is a huge neon sign. At least that's how I remember it and how my brain flashes it back at me now. On that huge neon are two words. 
This is the first time I had seen those two words arranged just like that. I've seen it many times since. It read, Love wins. Two words, love wins. Simple and matter-of-fact. Not an essay or a thesis or a long-winded amendment to a law. These were just two simple yet perfectly positioned syllables. Love wins. Not a question, not even a subtle suggestion. More like an independent thought or declaration. Hovering above indifferent to scrutiny, criticism, dispute, or debate. Love wins. This story is about a horrific and senseless evil act, an act that stole the lives of four innocent people and broke the hearts of so many others, that shocked the community, jarred me and my old NISC colleagues right out of our cubicles on that April morning. And yet, somehow, my most prominent and very unexpected discovery along this journey has been that despite all the damage, all the suffering, and all the sorrow that still exists and which will never fully go away, somehow, in the end, evil was such a pathetic opponent when faced head-to-head with empathy and with love. In the long run, evil didn't stand a chance here. Weeks ago, when I set out on this season, I knew the big question, the big thing we all wonder about, is this. Why did he do it? Why did Chad Isaac kill Bill, Lois, Adam, and Robert? I knew that Chad hadn't left a suicide note. He never confessed publicly, and at his sentencing, all he had to say was this. I can honestly tell you that I'm not a murderer, and that's all I have to say. But I wondered, did he ever confess to anyone? One of his lawyers, perhaps? He could have done that in confidence because of client-attorney privilege. But now that Chad is deceased, maybe that same attorney would speak out. So I called one of his lawyers, Robert Quick, a well-known and respected defense attorney here in North Dakota. He answered the phone while walking through an airport somewhere and told me personally he wasn't opposed to speaking with me, but professionally he had to decline because of client-attorney privilege. It exists even after the death of a client. No luck with his attorney. But maybe Chad Isaac confided in his family, I thought, if he even had a family. I called some friends, journalists, people who were at the trial. I was told Chad had lived alone at the time of the murders, but yes, he had a family. He had parents and siblings and even a grown daughter somewhere in the world. This was encouraging news because even if he didn't confess to his family, certainly they could help put pieces of the puzzle together. They could tell us who Chad was. What was he like as a child? I mean, we hear about the early warning signs of serial killers. Did Chad Isaac torture animals as a kid? Did he do drugs? Did he have a violent past? My hope of getting these pieces of the puzzle were quickly shot down, though. My journalist friend told me his family were at the trial, but they won't talk to the press at all. It came as no surprise to me that they didn't want their names out there. I tried to imagine the stigma of being a parent or sibling or daughter of a man who had killed four people before taking his own life. I might not want to speak to the media either. And so I lowered my expectations on ever speaking with Chad's family. But I did start learning more about Chad on my own. I started with newspaper archives. I found references to Chad as a young teenager. In a 1989 article about high school basketball, Chad is listed as a 5-foot, 10-inch sophomore guard. 
1990 basketball brief, Chad has scored nine points in a loss against Fort Yates Public High School. His teammates are listed there, too. I write down a few of their names as basketball teammates. I find some phone numbers. I try a few. When I get through to a voicemail, I leave a message. Only one calls me back. Yeah, I played basketball with Chad Isaac, he says. He declines an interview but tells me he was a good friend of Chad in high school. And he considers himself to be a good friend of Chad's family. A great family, he tells me. He also tells me he didn't have much contact with Chad during the last years before the murders. He says, quote, Chad was doing his own thing then. I told him I'd like to talk to Chad's family. Maybe he could put me in touch. He declined to help with that and said, I'll be honest, I don't think anyone in his family is going to want to talk to you. I thanked him and I hung up. I kept sifting through old archives, and suddenly I was staring at a photo of Chad Isaac, aged 12. It was in the archives of the Bismarck Tribune, an article dated December 3rd, 1986. The headline of the article read, Love Keeps Them Going, and in the photograph there are five people, including Chad. From left to right, we see the young Chad Isaac, aged 12. He's sitting on his knees, smiling into the camera. To his left is his two-year-old sister, Bree. I would later learn that Bree is his half-sister. Left of Bree is their mother, Candy, smiling. In her lap is Chad's half-sister, nine-month-old. Finally, to the left of his mother is Chad's full sister, ten-year-old Alicia. From that article, I learned the following. In 1986, the family lived in Pick City, North Dakota, a very small town some 60 miles northwest of Bismarck. The article is about Chad's nine-month-old half-sister who was born with Down's syndrome. The article educates the reader about Down's syndrome as well as an interview with Chad's mother and stepfather. The couple share their story about their dedication to making sure they do everything. In regards to the many challenges of raising a child with Down's syndrome, Chad's mother Candy is quoted as saying, quote, None of those problems are problems we can't handle with God's help. I keep digging through the archives and I learn that Chad graduated from high school in 1992. Six months later, he's completed basic training in the Navy. Two years later, he's stationed in Hawaii and he gets married there. His wife is from the island. Five years later, in February of 2000, they divorce. In another news clip, I find a wedding announcement for Chad's sister, Bree. I wrote her a letter, included my email address and phone number. Among other things, I wrote, I would be very grateful if you would take some time to consider if you yourself or someone else in your family might consider taking part in this audio documentary. I would like to learn more about your brother, and I would like to help my listeners understand how this event has impacted your lives. I printed it out, put a stamp on an envelope, and dropped it in the mail. Really, I figured I could have probably just tossed it in the garbage and saved myself a stamp. I really didn't expect to ever hear back. My first contact with Chad's family came via a text message from his sister Bree. To my surprise, she told me that they were considering my request. They would need time, though, and so I gave them time. It took weeks. 
We stayed in touch via email. They told me they were not going to listen to the podcast at all until they had made their decision. They didn't want what they had to say to be influenced in any way by what they might hear on the podcast. And the first thing they wanted to make clear was that their main concern was to not re-traumatize the victim's families. And I knew I was putting them in a tough position. On the one hand, because there is no known motive for Chad's actions, people like me and you and the community are left wondering what information they might be holding, anything that might help us connect some dots. What warning signs were there? Was there a history of violence? Who was he as a grown man, a young man, and as a child? And yet, for them to tell us about who he was as a man or a child, they risk making their story about Chad and taking away the focus from the victims. I had the same concern myself. I don't want to make this about Chad Isaac, at least not more than necessary. And yet, here we are all wondering who he was and if the answer to that question might help us in any way. After quite a bit of correspondence, Chad Isaac's family and I agreed to the following arrangement. Technically, I did not interview them. Instead, they asked if they could offer a type of open letter that they would write, and then three of them, Chad's mother and two of his sisters, Bree and Alicia, would then read the letter for this podcast. I agreed to this arrangement, and we agreed on a time to meet. Chad's mother, Candy, and his sister, Bree, would be there in person. With us, but over Zoom on a laptop, his sister, Alicia. And so, one afternoon in late October, I grabbed my gear and I headed out to meet them. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. By the time I was actually driving to finally meet Chad Isaac's mother and two of his sisters, I'd learned some things from my interviews with other people. For one, I learned that I was not the only person who had been eager to find out who they were. During the trial, Adam Fuhrer's stepmother, Shirley, had also been very curious. Here she is. When I went to the courtroom, I looked around the room wondering if his mother was there. Because I wanted to see what kind of a woman she was to raise a son like that. I didn't know who she was for about a week. Then I found out who she was. She wasn't the woman I thought she would be. <laughs> you know how you, you, you stereotype somebody sometimes, because I thought this was going to be a lady that was rough and mean-looking, and, and, and she wasn't. And we became acquainted during the, the time when we would leave the courtroom for a little bit, and then we'd go back in, then we'd go back out, and then I became acquainted with her and her, her two daughters. But she lost a son, I lost a son. Two different things, you know. I also learned that really most people hold an immense amount of compassion and empathy and understanding for Chad's family and their situation. Pat Haug investigated the case for Mandan PD. What he has to say here, I think, is a fair representation of what most folks told me in regards to Chad's family. You know, Chad Isaac's family had nothing to do with this, you know. This was Chad Isaac, 
that made the decision and did what he did. Um, and in a way, um, Chad Isaac's family is, are also victims because they got brought into this unwillingly because of his actions. You know, I've thought about that off and on. I remember seeing his mom and dad periodically in the courtroom. And, you know, you just wonder, you know, how difficult this is, is, is to watch this trial and know that this is what he did and how and what he did to, you know, a number of families and, and stuff like that. So I, I can't imagine that it was any easier for them than anybody else. And here is Lois Cobb's daughter, Brianne. Putting myself in their shoes, I, I just, I can't imagine. I don't know if they lived around the area. I'm assuming they did, but I couldn't imagine like going in public, if they even could go in public without getting dirty looks. And, and just because they are the parents of him, I, it's, I couldn't imagine that weight on their shoulders. The following is the letter Chad Isaac's family would like to present, narrated by his mother and sisters. This is Chad Isaac's mother, Candy. We just wanted to start out by thanking everyone who reached out to us during this extremely difficult time. We realized that knowing what to do or say was difficult, but we so appreciate those who did reach out, even if it was just a text, card, or message that you were thinking about or praying for us. The beautiful prayer quilt, those wonderful hugs, the love, kind words, and all those prayers really did help us get through each day. The extended family that jumped in to help with the business side of things were absolutely an amazing blessing. We thank you all so much. You deeply touched our hearts. And this is Chad Isaac's sister, Alicia. When we were first contacted by James about the possibility of being interviewed for this podcast, we really weren't sure if it was something we wanted to do. However, after a lot of discussion and prayer, we decided that if there is anything we can do to be a part of the healing process for the victims' families and the community, we want to be involved. Prior to this, we have not been willing to speak out regarding this tragic incident. However, we realize that there are still questions left unanswered and just natural curiosity. Our most important concern is that we do not do anything that would cause more pain to first and foremost the families of Robert, Adam, Lois, and Bill, but also our own. The victims' families have such a sweet place in our hearts, and we are so appreciative of the grace, compassion, and even friendship that we have received from them. We in no way want to take away from the victims or their families by sharing about Chad and our journey. We also realize that by having a small glimpse into who Chad was just might bring a little bit of closure. Chad's mother, Candy, again. Growing up and his early adult years, Chad was very soft and tender. He was a big brother, and he took his role very seriously by always looking out for his younger siblings. Some sweet memories of Chad include, when he was 12, I was pregnant with his little sister. 
I was dropping Chad off at his grandparents' house so I could head to the hospital. As I was walking out the door, he shouted, Mom, wait! I stopped, and he ran up to me, lifted up the bottom of my shirt, and kissed my belly. That is one of my most favorite memories. Chad's little sister was born with Down syndrome and had a very severe cardiac condition. As a result, she required a lot of therapy on a regular, usually daily basis. Almost every day when Chad would come home from school, he would ask how she did that day. He would check her charts that we kept, and he would also help her with her therapy regularly. He would encourage her and tell her, You can do it. You can do it over and over again. He really believed she could do it, and he made her believe it too. This is Chad's sister, Bree. Chad was also gullible. In middle school one day, he got off the school bus very upset because a friend had said, Chad, open your mouth and close your eyes. Chad opened his mouth and closed his eyes, and his friend put a dead fly right in his mouth. After this, one of the jokes in our family, even in his adult years, was asking him to open his mouth and close his eyes. He never was able to live that one down. Sometimes in those dark times that now occur, we try to remember those special things about Chad and try to recapture that Chad. Even in high school, Chad maintained these characteristics. He was a typical teenager, not getting into trouble, and had those good grades. He had a lot of friends. He was a natural athlete, specifically loving football, basketball, and windsurfing. He also really enjoyed hunting with his dad and grandpa. After suffering a neck injury playing football in high school, he started seeing a chiropractor that really helped him. It was after this that he planned to become a chiropractor. After graduating high school, he joined the Navy. While in the Navy, he got married and had a daughter. His marriage did end in divorce, and eventually he ended up raising his daughter on his own. Chad was very, very intelligent and determined. After he returned from the Navy, he began to pursue his dream of becoming a chiropractor. He put himself through chiropractic school, even while being a single father. After chiropractic school, he opened his own business. He seemed to enjoy being a chiropractor and was invested in helping his clients feel better. Chad did become more private and isolated himself from family and friends more and more as the years went by. Chad's mother, Candy, again. There is nothing in Chad's past that could have prepared us for what happened on April of 2019. On April 1st, 2019, we heard on the news that four people had been murdered in Mandan. Like everyone else, we read every story and watched TV for any updates. We felt safe here and thought things like this just did not happen in our community. I remember praying that the person responsible for this tragedy would be caught swiftly and without further incidents, and that justice would then be served. Never in a million years did it cross my mind that it would be my own son 
that was arrested and responsible. Chad's sister, Alicia. Nothing could have prepared us to hearing that Chad was arrested. We can't really even explain the feelings of this. It was complete shock, disbelief, and overwhelming emotion, making it difficult to catch our breath, physical illness, sobbing, and our minds racing a million miles a minute. We couldn't imagine how this happened and felt certain it would be straightened out and it would be realized they have the wrong suspect. These were nightmare days. The pain was so intense, our hearts felt like an open wound. As the days passed, we would get more information about the crimes, victims, and their families. Prior to Chad's arrest, we had some of this information, but afterwards, it was now personal. The grief was so intense. Not only grief for Chad and his possible involvement, but grief for the families and what they were going through. We would regularly pray that they would be comforted and have strength to make it through. Their names and faces became such a deep part of us, and the thought that our loved one could have been the cause of so much pain was absolutely agonizing. Sometimes we would cry until there were no tears left. Some days we didn't think we had the strength to make it through the day. In those times, as we cried out to our Heavenly Father, with all of our doubts and fears, He was true to His promise. When we are weak, He is strong. He always gave us the strength we needed to get through to the next day. Our family spent so much time going back over everything we missed, any clue we may not have noticed. It was very exhausting and frustrating to continue to have similar conversations over and over, but the answer was always the same. As hard as we tried, we just didn't see any red flags or anything that would have given us a clue that Chad was a danger to someone else. Chad's mother, Candy. After Chad's rest, I really began to notice all the RJR trucks and yard signs. Whenever I would see these, I would be hit again and again with such painful memories and sorrow over what Chad was accused of doing. At times, it was very difficult to even drive around town. At some point, I was talking to the Lord, maybe more like complaining about this, when I was reminded of how much the prayers of others were helping us to get through this. From that day on, I was reminded that this was just another opportunity to pray for those families. After that, any time our family saw the RJR signs or trucks, we would pray for blessings, healing, and strength over those family members. That was such an amazing difference that we actually started looking forward to seeing those signs and trucks, knowing that it was a way that we could now bring good into their lives. Chad's sister, Bree. During the years that followed Chad's arrest, there were a full range of emotions and questions. We had his business to close down, a house to take care of, 
along with other obligations. This became almost a full-time job, especially for Chad's father. We often said the tasks that needed to be done were similar to that of when someone died. However, Chad was still alive. The roller coaster ride of court hearings being scheduled and rescheduled was difficult, as just as we would prepare ourselves to face the next hearing, it would be delayed, making it feel like closure was never going to come. We made the decision as a family to attend Chad's trial, even though we knew it would be almost unbearable at times. It was very important for us to hear everything firsthand. We would have to live with this verdict for the rest of our lives. We also wanted Chad to know that he had a family that was there for him and loved him no matter what. We all had mixed feelings about the trial. On one hand, we still held out hope that some new evidence would come out that would somehow clear Chad's name. On the other hand, there was apprehension and dread, partly because we wondered how the families would respond to us. We hoped they would sense the compassion and empathy we had for them. As we prepared for the trial, we prayed for justice, no matter what that looked like, that we would see God's hand and walk each day in His strength, and that somehow this trial would be the beginning of healing for all of us. Of course, the first few days were awkward, but then we all began to exchange smiles and greetings in the hallway. Later on, there were words of encouragement and even hugs. We will be forever grateful to the families for their kindness and love that they showed us all. It was the start of a healing deep within us. There were several very special interactions that occurred during those three weeks. Candy We became especially close to Adam Fuhrer's stepmom, Shirley. She always had a kind word and a smile for us and she let us know she was also praying for us. This has led to a continual friendship with Shirley and myself. This is a connection from one mama's heart to another mama's heart. We are both experiencing incredible pain concerning our sons. Our strongest bond is that we are both praying and believing for healing for our families and ourselves. This friendship continues as, I believe, we're a source of strength for each other. We encourage each other and pray together. At the sentencing, hearing the victim's statements was horrendous, but they had articulated their thoughts and experiences so well, and we realized that those things needed to be said, that being able to get those feelings out as hard as that must have been for them and for us to hear, was so important. Sometimes the process of healing really hurts. Chad's sister, Alicia. We maintained contact with Chad throughout his arrest, trial, and incarceration. Of course, we were not able to discuss details of the crime due to everything being recorded but we were able to let him know the love of his family was unconditional. At times, it was difficult maintaining contact with him. We, of course, had so many questions that we couldn't ask, 
At no time during our contact with him did he give any insight concerning this crime. We have had people ask what happened to Chad's dog. Chad's dog was taken very well care of by a relative. He passed away from old age a couple years after Chad's arrest. Candy. On July 31st, 2022, Chad took his life in prison. We thought we would have a lot more time with him, time to build better relationships, to get answers to all those why questions, and see Chad allow the Lord to work in his life in such an awesome way that he would be able to be more free and peaceful in prison than he ever was on the outside of those walls. God does not always answer our prayers in the way that we want, but He does always keep His promises. As we look back through all of this, we can see God's fingerprints over all of our journey. During the worst time of our life, we experience God's faithfulness and love in the most amazing ways. He never left us alone for a second. He walked through this with us every step of the way. When we were so overwhelmed and didn't know what to do, He gave us direction and His peace. There is so much we still don't know and probably never will. But we are working on being able to leave those answers in God's hands. Alicia One of the things James asked me is what advice I would give someone else who is going through what we have gone through. My response to him was for them to call us and let us walk this journey with them. I wanted so badly to find support and realized there really isn't support or resources for the perpetrator's family when tragedies like this happen. Our prayer is that changes in the future And if we can provide the support that we wish we had to someone else, we would be honored. This concludes the open letter from Chad Isaac's family. If you are in need of the type of support that they are offering, contact me and I will put you in touch with them. Here is Shirley again, Adam's stepmother, talking about her bond with Chad Isaac's mother, Candy. She kind of knows what I'm going through, but she don't know because her hers was taken different than mine. But she'd been kind to me. And I've been kind to her, you know. After the hearing was over with and he was found guilty, I didn't know if I could face her right away. But I've seen her and she she was there. And she was waiting for us all to leave so I could give her a hug. But yeah, she's been my friend through this. Welcome back to the Mandan Murders. Chad's family told us that he isolated himself in later years. His high school friend and basketball teammate indicated the same type of thing for me. And I can tell you from experience, it's not like you can just drive up to Washburn, North Dakota today and find people who were pals with the man. I did find another person who had some interactions with Chad Isaac, though. 
Well, I'm uh, I'm Sergeant Cody Meadows. I'm with the uh, McLean County Sheriff's Office. Um, he he obviously had his his practice here in town, and uh, we got a, a call that um, there was a uh, uh, a theft or something along those lines occurring down at at the chiropractic office. Um, so myself and actually Sheriff Kurzman, uh, who just happened to be around, both responded to the uh, uh, to the call. When they got there, Chad Isaac had one of his patients, an elderly gentleman, sort of, I guess, cornered in the back of the office. The man, Chad's patient, had forgotten or left his checkbook at home. Chad was demanding payment for his services right then and there, and he wanted the man arrested. I, I don't want to say like he was he was holding them prisoner or anything like that, but he wouldn't let the guy leave, and and was getting in his his way and 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 you know yelling at him and and the guy the guy was pleading with him like hey just let me go I can go back to my house get you you know the payment and you know we can be done with this I mean he was very very adamant that we we arrest him and that he pay him right now because that's part of the policy is you pay right now. Um, and so, let, obviously, let the, the man go to his house, get the payment. He came back down with the payment, paid Chad, and then it was done and over. Um, Chad <laughs> told both of us that he would be making a, a complaint about us not doing our jobs to the sheriff. You know, he said he was going to file a complaint about how we handled the situation. He wanted the man, he wanted the man arrested because he provided services for him and he didn't have uh, payment immediately. He wasn't. He wasn't stealing from him. He had just forgot his stuff at the house, and and the literally within ten minutes we had payment and it was it was done and over. I asked Robert Faulkner's daughter Jamie and others what they felt when they heard that Chad Isaac had taken his own life. Here's Jamie. It made me sad for his family. It really made me sad for his family. Because they had to grieve. Because, I mean, he was still a person. He still had a life. He still had family. And I honestly felt bad for his family. Because they had to go through what we went through. Um, they, I mean, obviously, respectfully, they definitely probably didn't want to talk to us. <laughs> I don't expect them to create a relationship with us, and I, I don't expect that out of them at all. They were there during the trial every day. They were there to support him, and that's family. That's what family does. And at the end of everything... They gave me a hug and apologized. And I told them that they don't need to apologize to me. They didn't do anything wrong. So I, I feel bad that they have to grieve. And here is Gabriel Goder, who prosecuted the case, talking about Chad's suicide. In my mind, it's one one more way for him to strike at these people, um, for the victims, because they're left always wondering now, 
right? Um, always wondering why, as, as long as he lived, uh, they could have hope that he would someday actually talk about it. Um, and they're left with nothing now. So in, in my mind, that's really kind of just a screw you. Ben Pace, longtime employee at RJR, again on Chad Isaac's suicide. It was almost a sense of relief at the very first thought that I don't have to live on the same earth as a monster. But then in that exact same moment, I almost just felt angry that he now gets to get out of it. I have to live with my grief every day. My friends have to suffer and feel the weight of this person's actions for the rest of our lives. And he gets out of it. And Bill Cobb's daughter, Amy. Just everything that revolves around Chad Isaac is really hard for me um, because I'm not... I'm not an angry person and I don't hold grudges for anyone. I just feel like life is too short even before this to do that. Um, So I feel like that's kind of been a hard thing for me because I'm not an angry person, but I do feel like I do have hate in my heart that there are people so cruel. Um, But on the other side of things, I'm also, I don't know. I feel like I'm, um, a pretty empathetic person. Um, that's why I'm obviously going to school for nursing. <laughs> um, so I do feel like, I mean, he was obviously a, just a very ill man. Like he obviously had very, he obviously had something wrong with him, whether it, it just be, that's the way his brain worked. I don't know. I, I've tried to talk myself through it numerous times, but Obviously, I'm never going to know, but as far as my feelings towards him, um, I, every, almost every day, I think I don't, I don't want to hate someone. I think that, I think that I do hate him, but I, I try my hardest to not, um, because I don't want that feeling inside of me because it's not affecting him. It's affecting me, you know, um, but I think that those feelings are honestly always just going to be there. And this is Justin Cromer. Justin was the McLean County investigator who first recognized Chad Isaac's white pickup as being the one in the police bulletins. You may also recall that Justin was a patient of Chad Isaac, as were both of his parents. Living there in Washburn, he knew Chad Isaac. It made me mad that he, he went out that selfishly, I guess. One of my career goals someday, just because I knew Chad personally, was to someday just go sit down with him at the prison and try to get that why for the family. You know, there is no real motive at, that's ever been brought out in this. Um, so that, that that was one of my goals was someday to make that appointment at the, the prison and go sit down with him and see if he would let that go. But and now there's no no chance of that anymore, so. Justin Cromer is right. There is no chance of Chad Isaac telling us what in the world was going on in his mind at the time. But that doesn't stop us now from at least trying to find some clues in all the dust and rubble that Chad left behind him. 
But we should also stop and remind ourselves that as much as we all want to understand, a motive is not an excuse or explanation or necessarily a key to closure. Here is Robert Faulkner's daughter, Jamie. No matter what the reason was that this happened, it's never going to be good enough for us for closure. Nothing will ever make sense for what happened that day. No matter how angry a person is, nothing makes sense to do what happened that day. From the very, very beginning, there have been rumors and theories out there, some of them wilder than others. Oh, God, yeah. Just just crazy, absolutely crazy thoughts. And people love to talk about it. For example, there was a rumor that RJR had biker parties at the shop on weekends, I assume indicating some kind of biker gang involvement. We have never had a biker party in our shop. Yeah, we never. And there were rumors of RJR selling drugs. It was a drug deal gone wrong. I didn't even know what weed looked like until I was in my 30s. (laughs) It's... Uh, just the conspiracies around it. According to Chad Isaac's family, Chad never took drugs at all. He didn't even like taking aspirin. This is former Assistant State's Attorney Gabriel Goder again. As far as we knew at that time, and still to this day, there's no evidence that Chad Isaac used drugs. And investigators maintain they looked thoroughly into RJR's business and dealings, and they would have had to for several reasons. Certainly when preparing for the trial, Assistant State's Attorney Gabriel Goder and her team, along with BCI, they all knew that if RJR was involved in any criminal activity or even just shady or controversial activity, Chad Isaac's defense team would uncover it and bring it up at the trial in an attempt to cloud or color the jury's image of the business and maybe its owners. The prosecution needed to be prepared and needed to look into everything that might come up attorney Gabriel Goder again. These were just people, ordinary people that were going to work that day. They weren't engaged in, you know, any type of illegal activity. They weren't engaged in, you know, it wasn't a domestic situation. They just went to work. They got up, went to work, and they were dead, you know, shortly after entering the building. Honestly, I would say the amount of conspiracies that people came up with during it all really, really did not help us. In fact, I don't want to downplay this at all. You may have heard me play the following clip as part of a medley or teaser in this podcast. This is Jamie speaking again. Yeah, I, I, this whole process has 100% make me question humanity. Jamie made this comment to me not specifically about Chad Isaac or what Chad Isaac did, although I'm sure that what he did contributed to her thoughts on humanity. No, Jamie is talking about the cruel comments she says RJR received on social media and elsewhere after the murders. Here's Ben Pace, longtime employee. People who said that we deserved it, and that still happens to this day. If somebody's unhappy with a policy or procedure, we get the phone call that ends with, well, they deserved it. No wonder that happened to you guys. I'm going to skip over those most extraordinary theories, those with no support or evidence to back them up. Nor will I spend energy considering if Chad Isaac was a robot or an alien from another planet. 
I'm also going to just state that I have also considered and researched and dismissed some other theories I've come across, including one that claimed that Lois Cobb knew Chad Isaac, another that claimed that Jackie Faulkner knew Chad Isaac, and many others. If anyone can offer some actual proof of that, anything other than a rumor, I'd be happy to hear about it. But until then, I've come to the same conclusion as others, that it's all baseless. Again, if I'm wrong and you can provide some supportive information, please contact me. Instead, let's talk about the one theme in this story, the one word that comes up more than any others. In fact, the first words that came out of Chad Isaac's mouth when he was detained. Here is Joe Ahrens talking again about his first interaction with Chad Isaac. All he asks me about is his dog. He, he didn't even ask me what this was about, um, but asked me about his dog. Um, said he wanted the dog to go to the neighbors, so I passed that information on. Chad Isaac may not have had many friends, but he did have what some call man's best friend, his black lab. It was common to see Chad walking around Washburn with his dog. In fact, Sergeant Cody Meadows of the McLean County Sheriff's Office had an encounter with Chad and his dog, too. Here he is again. The the first time that I ever really met Chad, um, I, I was actually uh, doing some foot patrol down in the uh, the Riverside Park here in Washburn. And as I was walking along, uh, this dog came running up to me. Well, I seen the dog and I'm, I'm a dog lover. I was a canine handler for several years. And uh, so I, you know, instinctively started petting the dog. Um, and I didn't see anybody else around because kind of down there, there's a, uh, it, it, the land, the landscape, there's some, some really hilly areas where it goes down towards the river. And, uh, he was back kind of behind the hill and I couldn't see him at all. So I just seen this random dog kind of run up to me and I started petting it and you know, whatever. Um, he came out from behind the hill and, and started yelling at me to not shoot his dog and not to kill his dog. Um, it was, it was a very, just, it was kind of weird. Like it's just not something it was out of the ordinary. You know, I thought it was weird then, but it wasn't, you know, obviously anything that, uh, and everything. It was just one of those things that, that after the fact, it, it kind of, it clicked back in my head again. I was like, oh, that was a, an, an odd interaction I had with him. To say that Chad Isaac was concerned for his dog seems like an understatement. When apprehended by a swarm of cops, he's only got his dog on his mind. When he sees a cop petting his dog, his first thought is that the officer might shoot it. And consider this, too. Less than a year before the murders, RJR had taken over management of the trailer park where Chad lived. And it's safe to say that a fair amount of focus had been placed on dogs lately. Nothing unusual or excessive, really, but when seen through the lens of Chad Isaac, it may have looked... Well, I don't even want to know how it looked to him. I have no desire to get inside of his mind. But if he was worried about his dog, there was a lot of dog chatter going on in his life at the time. For one, RJR had a pet policy, and they asked their tenants to fill in a form about their pet. Nothing crazy, just making sure their pet policy is being followed. And then there was this. At some point, one of Chad's neighbor's dogs had bitten an employee at RJR. Those neighbors were then evicted for several reasons, including the incident with the dog. Later, another tenant in the park was evicted for non-payment. They happened to also have a dog, and although that eviction had nothing to do with the dog itself, one wonders how Chad Isaac interpreted it. Chad Isaac's inner world was obviously deeply disturbed in one way or another, and possibly it was littered with thoughts of dogs and perhaps perceived threats to dogs and perhaps to dog owners. 
Here is Pat Haug of Mandan PD again. You know, that conversation came up a lot during the the investigation. Why? Um, There were a number of theories. Not a lot that would back them up, but just theories. Um, The one that kind of kept coming back up into my head was his dog. And you got to go back to some of the interviews we did up there. Um, So when RGR took over management, he had some acquaintances that oversaw the RV side of that trailer court and they had a dog and that dog if i remember correctly bit one of the rjr employees and then they kicked him out of the rv or asked them to leave because of the dog because rjr had some rules about dogs and um knowing how he was with his dog because you know that came up a couple of times on him where's my dog who's taking care of my dog Stuff like that. So I knew that that dog was very significant to him. And in my head, I'm just kind of thinking, I have no proof one way or other, but I just felt that maybe he, they thought they were going to make him get rid of his dog. You know, his dog went everywhere with him. And so, and some people get that attachment, you know, to an animal, especially there's no significant other. There's a child, but the child's in, in the country, but not in the lower 48. And, um, so they get the, the same, very similar attachment as they do their children. And, you know, that was just kind of something that always kind of popped up in my head. You know, it's just a theory. Prosecutor Gabriel Goder. Yes, we know that his dog mattered a lot to him from jail. That was like his only concern. And even after he was told that his, his dog would essentially be grandfathered into this new pet policy, he still had concerns that he was, his dog was going to have to go. And so he was questioning the other neighbors about this, even after he was told, your dog's fine. What do Chad Isaac's actions at RJR tell us about who his intended victim or victims were? Who was he targeting? And what does that tell us, if anything? Chad Isaac planned the attack at RJR. We only know that because of the investigative instinct of a man named Ben Zachmeyer, who was co-owner and employee at Big O Tires next to McDonald's in Mandan. Ben had supplied surveillance video to the police, video of the mysterious masked man walking to and from McDonald's on the morning of the murders, April 1st, 2019. A few days after supplying the video, Ben Zachmeyer realized that something seemed odd in the video. It looked to him like the masked man sort of knew where he was going or walking, and if he knew where he was going, he must have walked there before. And so Ben went back and reviewed Big O Tire's surveillance video from days prior, and sure enough, he found it exactly one week earlier, almost to the very minute, the same masked man can be seen walking from his pickup at McDonald's past Big O Tire's and beyond. The date was March 25th. The prosecution argued in court that March 25th was Chad's practice run, part of his planning and premeditation. But investigators had also considered that Chad may have intended to carry out the murders on the 25th and then decided against it for some reason. And this thought opened up some room for speculation or interpretation about who exactly Chad was targeting. It is assumed that on both March 25th and April 1st, Chad hid in some trees between the RJR parking lot and a nearby golf course. Here is Special Agent Joe Ahrens of BCI. Those trees between Prairie West Golf Course and the RJR parking lot 
are thick enough that you could very easily sit in those and nobody would ever see you in there, but you would have a clear line of sight to RJR, employee entrance, the parking lot. So from where he was at, if he was in those trees, no one from RJR would ever know he's in there, but he would be able to see when people come and go from there. If Chad Isaac was indeed sitting in those trees on that first week, March 25th, watching people arrive at RJR, he would have at first seen Bill Cobb arrive at 6.30 alone, and then Robert Fockler a while later, but no Lois Cobb and no Adam Fuhrer. Lois didn't work at RJR that whole week as she was recovering from surgery, and Adam Fuhrer arrived much later, after Chad would have left. From the standpoint of the investigation, this could mean different things. Either Chad was casing out the place with the intention of doing it later, and he simply wanted to know who he could expect to be there, or he intended to do it that very morning, but something wasn't the way he wanted it to be, so he left. If March 25th was indeed Chad's test run, and he left satisfied with everything and planning to do it a week later, then we can perhaps deduce that either Bill Cobb or Robert Fockler or both were his intended targets. Then when he comes back the next week, Lois is there with Bill at 6.30, and then Adam arrives unexpected. On the other hand, if he was prepared to carry out the murders on March 25th, but didn't do it, that might lead one to consider if maybe Lois, or possibly Adam, were his intended targets. They didn't show up, so he aborted his plans. But really, on closer inspection, Chad's actions on April 1st seemed to indicate he was targeting Robert Faulkner and possibly also Bill Cobb. Here is Joe Ahrens again. Somewhere along the line, too, there with Lois, he had taken Lois's wallet and had went through it and there was like a concealed weapons card and some debit cards, credit cards, and those were laying on the floor. And then the wallet and her cell phone were laying a, a little bit of a distance, 10, 15 feet away from there. Investigators also found Adam Fuhrer's wallet. It too had been removed and the contents tossed to the floor. So when we watch all of that, our opinions are that he, when he killed Lois and Adam, that he potentially maybe didn't know who they were. And so he pulled out their wallets to even see who they were because he didn't do that with Bills. And he didn't do that with Roberts. Another indication that Chad was targeting Robert Faulkner was this. He waited and waited and waited at least 13 minutes. He didn't leave RJR until he had killed Robert Faulkner. When he, you know, when he walked to the door and he looked out, it appears he's waiting for somebody. You know, after he kills Lois and Bill, he could have left. After he kills Adam, he could have left. And it was only after killing Robert that he left. So why Robert Faulkner? And what did Chad know about Robert Faulkner? Well, there's only one known confirmed interaction between the two men. This happened in 2018 on Chad Isaac's doorstep in Washburn. RJR employee Ben Pace and Robert Faulkner were there one day handing out welcoming letters. RJR was taking on management and maintenance of the park, and so they were there introducing themselves and RJR to the tenants, as well as inviting them to a meet and greet, and just in general answering any questions or concerns that any tenants had. Here is Ben Pace. I knocked on his door and he had said that he does the snow removal in that cul-de-sac with his personal blade. 
I said, I would love for you to meet Robert because he's the owner of the company. He deals with all the maintenance stuff. And, you know, I'm sure if you wanted to continue doing that, we could work something out. Robert came up, we stood on his steps and spoke to him and Robert had offered him, you know, I, I'd be able to compensate you. I don't want you to put wear and tear on your belongings for free. I don't work for free and you shouldn't be working for free. Then Robert or Ben Pace, one of the two, handed Chad Isaac an RJR business card with Robert's name on it. Investigators would find that business card in Chad's wallet on the day he was arrested. There are no known occurrences of follow-up conversations about snow removal between Chad Isaac and RJR. Chad did call RJR one time to discuss the pet policy. Chad Isaac was not a problem customer for RJR. When Chad was arrested and Mandan PD announced his name, the folks at RJR had no clue who it was. He wasn't even on their radar. His name didn't ring a bell. You just never know what's coming. One minute you're sitting in an office cubicle in Mandan, North Dakota, feeling maybe you're not doing a good enough job converting databases, and the next minute, four years have passed, and you're attempting to wrap up the last episode of a podcast season that you've titled The Mandan Murders, fully aware that no matter how you wrap it up, it will never be good enough. It can't be good enough. You're not even sure it should be. What kind of ending is good enough to do justice to a story about all the many wonderful people you've met and the four people you can never meet? The good things they stood for or the bad things that happened to them? What kind of bow should the story be tied up with? A beautiful one? A black one? A tattered old bow of sorrow? Or a brand new silk bow of joy? You just never know what's coming. One minute you're finally headed to visit RJR Maintenance and Management in Mandan, where you've been invited to observe their monthly meeting in the shop, and the next minute you're arriving, realizing you're a little afraid to go inside. Because by now you know the layout of the building, where they were killed, how they were killed, you know where evil walked and what it did, and you realize you're afraid that the facilities at RJR might be infested with some kind of darkness, something that might get into your clothing, onto your skin, or into your lungs. One minute you think you'll just leave, and the next minute you are outside of your car, outside of yourself, walking into the big RJR shop where, mounted high up on the walls, Four huge portraits, photographs of Adam, Robert, Bill, and Lois watch over the band of RJR staff below them, who now are gathered for their monthly meeting, and Jamie is announcing the employees of the month. We're going to do the first one for August, and then we'll do the second one for September, okay? So, drum roll... Okay. Tyler Bockheim. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> and also, another one, no comments, but. And then 
this one I this one I really like because I think this is an area that all of us can work on on helping our coworkers. This one says willing to slow down and train. So, congratulations. Okay, so you guys know what you have to do. You have 30 days to use your paid day off. I did not see what was coming. At RJR in 2023, there was no darkness. I laughed and smiled, and honestly, I didn't want to leave the place. I found no evil, no fear, no residue at all from Chad Isaac. And then, after the meeting, the huge doors were raised and RJR's maintenance staff were deployed out into the world again. Today, just like yesterday, just like they'll be doing tomorrow. Mind me asking where you're headed this morning? We are heading to 201 1st have to remove carpet. Carpet? Okay. Do you kind of stick to the same kind of task or you just do everything? We do everything. We mow, we remove carpet, and then we just do the heavy hauling. Awesome. You guys have a great day. Thank you. We clean. That sounds awesome. Here two months now? Yeah. 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 It's good. Though. I've been here for four years, almost. So like when people move out and before people move into new... Yeah. And me, maybe I've got a brand new game, a new outlook. Maybe the uncertainty of tomorrow is not something to be feared, but something to be cherished and welcomed. After all, more often than not, evil is a cowardly no-show. Most surprises around the corner are nice surprises. It's how we meet new people. It's how we find new friends and run into old ones. Occasionally, it's the way we fall in love. And in the end, always, love wins. Coda Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications. To see photographs, documents, video, and more about this season, head over to inforum.com slash mandanmurders. Want to support the show? We are entirely funded by subscribers of Forum Communications Company. To become a subscriber and support the show, go to inforum.com slash subscribe. Find more Dakota Spotlight at inforum.com slash Dakota Spotlight and check out the vault section for more true crime. And don't miss the awesome Dakota Spotlight Facebook group. To join, go to facebook.com slash groups slash Dakota Spotlight. Once again, thank you so much for listening to Dakota Spotlight. I'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.